Chapter 5 We have seen that the eternal God has not abandoned the creation he so carefully designed and put together. He's actively sustaining it with many defence mechanisms, and he's always ready to intervene. The Bible gives an account of many such interventions. They're usually described as judgments, identifying what is right or wrong and changing things for the better. Many times the Lord God has stepped in to save, protecting the weak against the strong and rescuing the vulnerable from cruel oppression. Sometimes he steps in to sift, releasing a crisis in which everyone can choose to behave well or badly and is judged on that account. And occasionally he intervenes to sweep clean, wiping out great systems of evil so that good may have a chance to survive and recover. Most frequently then, the Lord God steps in to save. We read, He rescues the needy from the cruel words of the wicked and from the clutches of the oppressor. The widow in the parable speaks for many when she cries, Give me justice against my adversary. And hers is not a vain hope. When we read, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. If the poor and downtrodden have no one else to turn to, the psalmist says, I know that the Eternal will maintain the cause of the afflicted and administer justice for the needy. But saving the weak and vulnerable may often require the ruin of those who harass and torment them. Despots with power to destroy may need to be destroyed. Priests who deceive and exploit the faithful may need to be eliminated. A cruel pharaoh may require ten successive plagues before the enslaved Israelites can go free. So we read, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. He does this for the benefit of his unhappy people, to save them from their distress. Ruin and destruction are not the normal work of the Lord God. The Bible calls them his strange work, his alien work. They do not reflect his desire or his character, but they are sometimes necessary in the cruel conflict between good and evil that mars this present disjointed world. On two occasions he crushed powerful armies threatening his people, and he was willing to do the same again. So we read, For the Eternal will rise up as he did at Mount Perazim. He will be roused, as he was in the valley of Gibeon, to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. It was not what he would normally do, or what he would wish to do. It did not represent his character at all. 
But when the oppressed cry for justice, eliminating the oppressor may be the only way to secure it for them. So we read, when justice is done, it is a joy to those who do right, but terror to evildoers. In the Bible, Israel was a nation occupying a designated territory. Like every nation, it had to rely on the threat and the use of force to keep its people safe. Invasion by enemies and subversion by evildoers can be prevented in no other way. Law is useless if not enforced. Borders mean nothing if not defended. And this will sometimes require violence. In the history of Israel, we do not see God doing what he would like to do. We see him doing what is necessary for the survival of a people who trust him in a corrupt and wicked world. The Old Testament describes how the Lord God repeatedly intervened to rescue his people from great difficulty or danger. With each act of judgment, there came renewed hope for better days ahead. But every time, that hope was sadly disappointed. Peace and prosperity remained an elusive dream, impossible to fulfil. If Cain, the murderer, can be banished far from human habitation, perhaps all will be well. If the proud citizens of Babel are scattered to the ends of the earth, perhaps all will be well. If a violent generation is swept away in a great flood, perhaps all will be well. Perhaps if the Israelites can find food in Egypt, escape from slavery, receive a law to live by, and a fertile land to cultivate, Perhaps if they have a king to defend them and prophets to teach them the ways of God. Perhaps if all else fails and they are exiled, their children may return and do better than they did. Perhaps then, finally, all will be well. But none of these great interventions could make a bad world good, or even one small part of it. There was still disease decay and death, still warfare, poverty and cruel oppression. The epitaph is written over all. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. This long and tragic history shows the best that could be done in a fallen world without a saviour sent from heaven. The law and indeed, the entire Old Testament is, as we read, an instructor leading us to Christ. For he alone could begin to heal the wounds and establish everlasting peace. When we read of attackers routed and evildoers slain, we know that God would greatly prefer the guilty to mend their ways. His desire is always to bless rather than to condemn. But if a person or a people have set their heart on wickedness, 
a blessing would merely prolong and encourage their evil course, leaving their dejected victims in continued misery. So eventually, the judgment falls. He intervenes to save. Usually, there is clear warning, and those with ears to hear will take heed and perhaps escape the fatal blow. The Egyptians were given notice before each plague and offered a way out. Moses later warned his own people, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live. The Lord God himself appeals to them, saying, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? In all this we see the goodness of the Lord. We know from experience that most people work better to a deadline. And some without a deadline will not work at all. Many will not heed the warning until the day of reckoning is at hand. The tragedy is that by then it may be too late. While some judgments are to save, others work to sift. The calamity or disaster will affect everyone, revealing each individual for what they are, clarifying their character, priorities and beliefs. It may teach a lesson, provide a warning, or provoke a severe crisis of faith in which sheep and goats go different ways. It will be a turning point in many people's lives. When Jesus was born, Simeon told his mother, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Some would accept him, and some would not. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed, some receive it, and some do not. There is a similar sifting when a nation suffers a major catastrophe. It's then that we hear of heroic courage and compassion in the face of human need. Human kindness prevails over human selfishness, and many become better people. But others become worse. In time of famine or war, some will hoard for their own use, while others care for the hungry and the sick. When a racial minority is persecuted, some will loot their property, while others offer them safe refuge. When times are hard, some will donate food or clothing, while others profit from human misery to make a fortune. The judgment is then not on the nation, but on the individuals within it. And the Lord God will know how to deal with each of us as we have dealt with others. Some will rise in his estimation, and some will sink. Some will seek him, 
and others will harden their hearts against him. It's our personal response to the crisis that counts for time and for eternity. When disaster strikes, we're all compelled to assess what really matters. As worldly props are knocked away, some who never gave a thought to God will stop and pray and find he answers prayer. Losing everything at such a time, we may yet gain wisdom more valuable than all we lost. And in this too, we may see the goodness of the Lord. Our first parents imagined that a knowledge of good and evil was desirable to make one wise. And despite the misery it brings, this knowledge can still make us wise. We're wise when we learn to distinguish between the two, loving the good and shunning the evil. We're wise when our disappointment with what goes wrong leads us to the one who puts things right. Yet the truth remains that most people suffer the evil without gaining the wisdom. That, again, is the real tragedy. On rare occasions, the Lord God intervenes to sweep away great systems of evil so that goodness may have a chance of recovery. The catastrophe is tragic, but when the dust has settled, we see it has accomplished great benefit for mankind. In the days of Noah, we read, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. In the time of Joshua, hosts of terrifying hornets drove out the barbaric tribes of Canaan. A succession of corrupt cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, Jericho, Ai and Amalek, were totally destroyed and all their inhabitants with them. These were obliterating judgments on depraved cultures and peoples. And their purpose in each case was positive, gaining much ground for good in the battle against evil. Extreme violence throughout the earth was ended with the flood. Little children in Canaan would no longer be burnt alive in frenzied rituals to idols of wood and stone. And the depraved cities of the ancient world ceased to spread their cruel and abusive cultures to neighbouring tribes and nations. Some destructive interventions serve as a warning to the survivors, allowing them to mend their ways. Others destroy everything and there are no survivors. But in each case, the judgment clarifies the issues. Those who watch from afar can learn what they need to know. And again, it shows the goodness of the Lord. Throughout human history, there have been similar upheavals, traumatic for many at the time, yet working for the good of that generation and especially for their children. The Black Death, destroying almost half the population of Europe, 
undermined the feudal tyrannies of those days and hastened the Renaissance and the Reformation. The bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, terrible for the inhabitants of those cities, brought a quick end to the war in the East, saving millions from forced labour and brutal abuse. Without belittling the tragic loss for those involved at the time, historians assure us that the world was a better place after two world wars. London was a better place after the Great Fire, and so was Rome after Nero's conflagration. If the hand of God can be discerned in these things, allowing evil to overthrow evil and violence to crush violence, we might think it a hazardous strategy. But if he knows the end from the beginning, then all we can do is stand in awe. It is written, Though he cause grief, he will have compassion. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. He allows it reluctantly, and he allows it for the best. From its earliest pages, the Bible shows the Creator exercising justice in the affairs of humankind. He judges individuals. He judges families. He judges churches. He judges cities. He judges nations. He is the judge of all the earth. It is a mistake to think that because we believe and are saved individually, God views us just as individuals. Each of us is tied into a bundle. We belong to a family, a church, a city, a nation, and ultimately to a fallen humanity and he deals in justice and in mercy with the totality of which we are a part. As members of the community, we take our share in the blessing or curse that falls upon the whole. When Adam fell, the whole of creation under his authority, tied up in his bundle, fell with him. So we read, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. His descendants all face illness and accident. They struggle for food, suffer human conflict, grow old and eventually die. It's the consequence of a judgment that took place in the distant past and does not reflect God's pleasure or displeasure towards any person living here today. In our own life, we're familiar with collective suffering caused by individual error, accident or wickedness. A car tyre bursts and hundreds on the motorway are late for work. A chip pan catches fire and a whole block of apartments is burnt out. A terrorist boards a plane, and all on board perish. Frustrations and tragedies come upon groups of people and affect everyone in the group. This is a simple reality of human existence. We see it in the Bible too. The Egyptian firstborn 
all perished when the Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Midianite women and children were captured when their warriors were defeated. The Edomites and Amalekites suffered for the cruelty of their ancestors. Achan's family were destroyed because their father had transgressed. A plague afflicted David's subjects on account of his own mistake. We face many difficulties simply because we belong to a people that has been judged, perhaps long ago, perhaps more recently. When collectivities such as nations, cities, churches and families come to grief, there will be individuals among them conspicuously guilty, and others entirely innocent who suffer along with the rest. Caleb and Joshua must wander forty years in the wilderness, because the other leaders in their company lack their faith. The prophet Ezekiel is dragged into captivity because his ungodly compatriots deserve it. Paul and his missionary companions will suffer shipwreck along with all the crew because the captain and owner have misjudged the weather. These faithful men suffered not because they had done wrong, but because they belonged to a collectivity that had gone wrong. Disaster and decay in a fallen world will affect everyone without distinguishing degrees of guilt. Do you think, Jesus asked, that these Galileans were worse evildoers than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? For the innocent members of a compromised collectivity, this may seem hard and perhaps unfair. Yet there is a corresponding compensation. A single member of that flawed company may win it a reprieve, or even change its future destiny. Laban's household prospered when Jacob joined it. Potiphar's home was blessed for Joseph's sake. Solomon's kingdom was preserved on account of his father David. And the people of Nineveh were all saved from disaster when Jonah went among them. But most poignantly for us, the entire human race, under sentence of death, now has the possibility of eternal life because, as we read, one has died for all. Conceived in the womb of Mary, Jesus Christ was born into the nation of Israel. He was tied into that particular bundle. He joined a people who had transgressed the covenant and spurned the commands of God. The penalty of the broken law lay heavily upon the nation. And thirty years later, Jesus took the weight of it on his own shoulders. So an Israelite could write, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
But when Jesus was conceived and born as a human child, he also entered the much larger collectivity of humankind. He joined the descendants of Adam, a company with a far longer history of folly, violence and corruption, a company much more guilty and more ripe for judgment. On the cross, he bore not just the sin of Israel, but of all mankind. He became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus died representing Israel, and he died representing humanity, the Son of David and the Son of Man. He was accepted as the representative of both by the judge of all the earth. He bore the penalty owing to both. Because he belonged to these two collectivities, they could each receive the blessing that was his. And then he created a new collectivity of his own. Now this is important. Jesus was born into our collectivity, but we can only enter his by faith. It is a personal commitment. By putting our trust in him, we can be added to him. So it was in the early days. We read, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. In this way, Jesus became the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. To be added to the Lord is a life-transforming experience. As it's written, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Tied into the bundle of Christ, we are as acceptable to the Father as he is himself. So we read, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Indeed, we are as much alive as he is. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This new life is possible for anyone. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For those who come, he has a further invitation and a promise. Follow me, and I will make you. But those who will not come should not wonder why they find no rest. Nor should they complain if their life lacks purpose and direction. The invitation is offered to each of us. The future of the collectivity is assured. But whether you join it is up to you.